more than you have. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, beloved far, far away family in the distant reaches of the galaxy. It's your interstellar adventurer, Kyle, freshly returning from an exhilarating surf across the cosmic waves of hyperspace. And I come bearing an extraordinary gift, a brand new installment of Star Wars Audio Archives. Are you prepared for a journey that will captivate your mind? Imagine your excitement igniting, just like a pergo catching a brisk and mystical hyperspace breeze. Picture the stars twinkling in anticipation as we embark on this adventure. Everyone gather around and tune into your senses. Prepare to be whisked away to a universe where imagination knows no bounds, and every sound paints a vivid picture of a distant world and legendary heroes. So are you all set? Because it's time to launch into part four of Annihilation. So let's get to it. The analytics office was a windowless, overcrowded room packed with computer terminals and 23 SIS agents gathering, organizing, and analyzing data from the thousands of reports that came in every day. For the past week, the cramped office might as well have been Theron's home, as he and the rest of the understaffed team worked double shifts to try to stay on top of everything coming in. However, despite making a sincere effort to contribute, he couldn't shake the feeling that he was wasting his time. It wasn't that he didn't believe in what analytics was doing, he understood they were a vital component of SIS. But Theron had developed a unique set of specialized skills, almost none of which were applicable to his current position. It made him want to scream. Twenty times a day a piece of small but unusual information that begged further attention would pass across his desk, a potential lead to what might possibly be a mission critical to the safety of the Republic. Instead of being able to act on these leads, he had to write up reports with recommendations on how to proceed, then forward them to his superiors for review, knowing full well that by the time a field agent was assigned to the case, the opportunity would probably be lost. And even when he wasn't in the office, he was still stuck on Coruscant, probably the safest and most secure planet in the Republic, and the absolute last place Theron wanted to be. He feared that he was losing his edge, the day after day of boring desk work had dulled his survival instincts. The director had sentenced him to three months in this prison, and if he served his full time, he might never regain them. If he didn't get out of analytics soon, something bad was bound to happen. Maybe he'd resign in disgust, go rogue and take off on a mission without SIS approval or support. Or maybe he'd just snap and go on a rampage throughout the analytics office, smashing every monitor and computer station he could before the authorities dragged him away. Or, most terrifying of all, maybe he just learned to accept the drudgery of his new post. The only thing that had kept him sane so far was the few hours each day he was able to work on Operation Endgame, Jace Malcolm's special project. The Ascendant Spear was the last vestige of Darth Mechus's superweapons research program, one last loose thread from the mission that had cost Nagani Zhou his life. Theron had no problem spending his time trying to devise a plan to bring the spear down. What bothered him was the thought that some other agent would be the one to actually put that plan into effect. He felt a tap on his shoulder as the voice of his supervisor said, 
Time to pack it in, Theron. Surprised, Theron glanced at the chrono on the wall. Guess I lost track of time, he said. Another sign you're losing your edge. The days used to drag on forever. You could feel each individual agonizing second slipping by. Now you're getting so used to being stuck in the chair, you don't even notice when it's time to leave. You're numb. Go home and get some sleep, his supervisor ordered. The reports will still be here tomorrow. Is that supposed to make me feel better? Theron silently wondered as he stood up and headed back to his apartment. Once inside, he briefly considered doing some off-the-clock work on Operation Endgame. Even from home, he had access to files with all but the highest level of security clearance. But the drudgery of analytics sapped both his physical and mental energy. All he wanted to do was collapse into bed. They're grinding you down bit by bit. Ignoring the voice inside his head, Theron made his way to the bedroom at the rear of the apartment, stripped off his clothes, flicked off the light, and crawled under the covers. Just as he was on the verge of drifting off, however, he was jarred awake by the chime of an incoming hollow call. I accept incoming, he muttered groggily, taking a moment to realize the call wasn't coming on his cybernetic implant. He rolled over and tapped the holocom on the nightstand beside the bed, propping himself up on his elbow to get a better view. To his surprise, an image of Tefith materialized before him, the glow of the hollow spreading faintly across the otherwise darkened room. Why are you in bed? the Twi'lek asked, arching her eyebrows in surprise. You sleeping? Or you with a friend? I'm... I'm alone, Theron stammered his mind spinning as he tried to wrap his head around the situation. Why is she calling? Where is she calling from? How did she know where I'm staying? Didn't think you'd be home. Gonna leave a message. Theron realized he wasn't the only one taken aback by their unexpected conversation. Knowing Tefith was a bit flustered as well helped him regain some of his composure. So give me the message. After a moment's hesitation, Tefith took a deep breath then blurted out, No, you were there on Nashada. Don't need you following us. Don't want you following us. Back off, or you'd be sorry. How'd you even get this number? Theron asked, not bothering to respond to her ultimatum. Not so hard. You think you're only one who can find people? So you went to all the trouble of tracking me down just to tell me to leave you alone? Didn't ask for your help. Don't need it. Take care of ourselves. Really? Seemed to me if I hadn't stepped in, you'd be a rotting corpse in a Narshada landfill right about now. Think we owe you now? That's why you help us? I just happened to be in the area. Thought I'd help you out for old time's sake. Liar. Not just Narshada, right? You there on Korriban? Bersavis? Zyost? I've never been to Zyost in my life. No more watching. Stop following us. Got it? Don't worry about it. I'm staying on Coruscant for a while. Taking some time off from field work. I'm focusing on reports and paperwork now. Why would you even tell her that? You becoming one of those office drones that complains to anyone who will listen? You? Behind a desk? Tebeth's face broke into a grin. <laughs> Funny. The choice wasn't really mine. Theron said, 
his voice betraying more anger than he intended. Always good to choice. Sounds like you were just a quitter. Why do you even care? Don't, Tempest said with a shrug. Be boring. We don't care. Just leave us alone. The hollow abruptly disconnected, leaving Theron alone in the dark. He rolled over, closed his eyes, and tried to go to sleep. But something Tepheth had said had lodged itself inside his head, and instead of drifting off into dreamland, he kept circling back to it. She mentioned Ziost. The old Tian Brotherhood must have begun moving in there when the Empire started allowing outsiders to visit the world. The simple fact might seem insignificant, but Theron knew there was a reason he couldn't let it go. His subconscious had latched onto it for some reason. Now he had to draw it out. Zyost. That's the key! Zyost! In a flash of inspiration, it all came together. Operation Endgame. Ignited by the catalyst, the past week of research and analysis fused into the beginnings of a plan to bring down the Ascendant Spear. Theron sprang out of bed, eager to record the details while they were still fresh in his mind. And, with a little luck, this will get me back in the field, too. Darth Mar was the last of the assembled Dark Council members to arrive at their secret chamber beneath the Citadel. He'd scheduled the meeting, contacting the others only hours after learning of Darth Gravis' death. But even though he'd summoned them, he still had no idea what he was going to say. He'd reviewed the official records of the battle over Lerator, including transcriptions of the communications between Gravis and Carrot in the field reports filed by Moff Lorman. The Ascendant Spear dropped out of hyperspace beyond range of the Republic scanners, at which time Darth Carrot informed Darth Gravis of our arrival. Darth Gravis, this is Darth Carrot. The Ascendant Spear is at your disposal. Disengage, Carrot. We didn't call for reinforcements. This is my battle to win, not yours. Darth Carrot disregarded Darth Gravis's request, choosing to aid the Imperial war effort by engaging the enemy fleet. After the Ascendant Spear disposed of one of the Republic Hammerheads, Darth Gravis and Darth Carrot had the following exchange. You think this will turn the Dark Council against me, Carrot? You could take out every Republic ship in this quadrant. But when it comes time to choose someone to join their ranks, they'll still pick me over a falling. You do not grasp the danger you are in, Gravis. You could be killed in this battle. I am here to ensure a desirable outcome for the Empire. Ignore the Republic ships! Fire on the Ascendant Spear! Destroy it at all costs! Do not let it! At this time, Gravis switched to an auxiliary communications channel. Shortly after this, he fired on the Ascendant Spear as we continued to engage the Republic fleet. Darth Carrot was forced to destroy Gravis and his fleet to defend her ship and crew. The official military review would clearly show Gravis had been in the wrong. However, it was obvious to Mar, just as it would be obvious to everyone on the Dark Council, that Carrot had intentionally goaded him into firing the first shot. The fact that Carrot had brazenly defied Mar's instructions and undermined his attempts to unify the Sith by eliminating a rival was disturbing. He was starting to wonder if granting her a seat on the Dark Council would be more trouble than it was worth. His immediate concern, however, 
was dealing with the fallout from the other Sith Lords assembled in the room. Darth Maar, Valron said by way of greeting. It's impolite to keep us all waiting. Mar ignored the Sith's sardonic words. You all know what happened to Gravis, he said, getting straight to the matter at hand. You all know why we're here. It seems Gravis is no longer a viable candidate, Valron said with a coy smile. Does this mean carried as our choice by default? This question must be answered by the entire Dark Council, Mar replied, bracing himself for the outrage and protests of the others. There was an unexpected silence before the ancient Darth Rictus spoke up. Carrot answered the question for us, he proclaimed. She bested her rival with strength, yet was cunning enough to make it appear she was in the right. These are the traits of a true Sith. Darth Maul was left momentarily speechless at the unexpected show of support. Given Rictus's many years on the Dark Council, his approval would go a long way toward winning the others over. We were willing to give the seat to Gravis if he defeated the Republican Lerator, Mortis chimed in. Since Carid claimed the victory, she deserves the prize. Mar was even more surprised by Mortis's support. His sphere of influence was laws and justice. And even though the Empire's version of justice could often be summarized as might makes right, he'd assume Mortis would be outraged by what Carrot had done. Gravis was your candidate, he said, looking for clarification. You don't want to seek revenge for his death? I thought Gravis was more powerful than Carrot, he replied. But his death proves otherwise. She issued a challenge, and he accepted by firing on her ship. A fatal mistake. It seems I underestimated the falling. She took bold action, Darth Ravage added. She saw what she wanted, and she seized it. If more of the other Sith Lords beneath us followed her example, the Republic would not have us running like cowards. Their words momentarily caught Mar by surprise. Though Carrot's actions were perfectly in line with the traditional ways of the Sith, he thought it would take longer for the rest of the Dark Council to overcome their inherent prejudice and welcome a member of a lesser species into their ranks. However, he understood that their willingness to embrace Carrot was still driven by the one trait they all shared. Self-preservation. As Dark Lords of the Sith... They understood the power of Carrot's ship, and the opportunity she represented. The spear was vital if they hoped to turn the tide of the Galactic War. And down the road, Carrot could be a powerful ally to use against not only the Republic, but also the other members of the Dark Council. For now, they would invite her in with open arms, each publicly voicing support to try to win her over as they bided their time, waiting patiently they would play their political games, trying to twist her allegiance so they could use her and her ship to their own advantage, even as they slowly plotted her destruction. In other words, they would see her as they each saw every other member of the Dark Council, simultaneously a potential ally and a potential enemy. Mar sighed inwardly, 
Karen had not hesitated to wipe out a fellow Dark Lord to advance her own career, even though the loss of Gravis made the Empire more vulnerable to the Republic. He had hoped the Valene might be more open to his efforts to unify the Sith against a common foe, but she had proven herself to be as much a student of the old ways as all the others. Despite his best efforts, the culture of backstabbing and infighting still prevailed. The Emperor had kept it under control by virtue of his own unassailable position and power. But in his absence, it was eating away at the core of the Empire. And Mar was starting to doubt if he, or any among the great Sith Lords, would be able to stop it. Marcus moved quickly through the halls of Coruscant's massive Senate building, heading for Jace Malcolm's office in the military wing. Forty standard years ago, the Senators would have been horrified if a military officer, even the Supreme Commander of all Republic forces, had an office in the same building. Back then, most politicians had openly called for a massive decrease in the size of the Republic fleet and a reduction in the number of soldiers. The idea of a full-scale galactic war seemed preposterous, and the desire to shrink the scope and budget of the armed forces was virtually unanimous. Four decades of war against the re-emerged Sith Empire had changed things significantly. When the Treaty of Coruscant had been forced on the Republic years ago, some believed a lasting peace with the Empire was possible. But in the last 18 months, the uneasy truce had collapsed, and a return to full-scale hostility silenced all talk of peace in the halls of the Senate. As the tide of war shifted to the Republic's favor, the idea of ending the Imperial threat once and for all began to gain support. The Republic's growing military resolve was championed by the newly elected Chancellor Suresh. The former governor of Terrace, few had seen her as a candidate for the Republic's highest political position, but she swept to power on a wave of aggressive anti-Imperial sentiment. Unlike others vying to succeed Chancellor Janaris, she hadn't promised to bring the Republic peace. She promised victory. Within days of her election, she enacted all 36 wartime provisions listed in the Galactic Constitution, greatly expanding the powers and responsibilities of her office and allowing her to make major political appointments without Senate approval. There had been some behind-the-scenes grumbling at the sudden increase in executive power, but Suresh quickly quieted the dissenters by appointing the wildly popular Jace Malcolm as the new Supreme Commander. The director had studied Suresh's rapid rise to power carefully. It was impossible not to be impressed by her ambition and her political brilliance. Tapping Jace for Supreme Commander had been a particularly astute move. Nobody would speak out against such a long-serving Republic hero. His selection legitimized every appointment that came after. Suresh had found the perfect candidate to solidify her support and she'd put the military under the charge of a man who was as eager to wipe out the Republic's Imperial foes as she was. Not that the Director minded. He also believed crushing the Empire was key to securing the Republic, and he was ready to show how valuable SIS would be to that cause. Operation Transom hadn't ended as planned. Operation Endgame was his chance to make up for it. As he approached Jace's office, Marcus allowed himself a hint of a smile, they presented the Supreme Commander with a basic outline of Operation Endgame just yesterday, and Jace had already scheduled a meeting to discuss it in more detail. Clearly, he'd been impressed. The Director was more than a little impressed himself. 
the analytics team had gone above and beyond for this project. They'd managed to pull everything together in just over a week, thanks largely to Theron's contributions. Marcus had been worried about Theron's potentially disruptive impact when he'd assigned him to the team, though he'd hoped the nature of their research might make the transition from fieldwork easier. Much to the director's relief, as soon as Theron realized analytics was working on a way to put an end to Darth Mechus's legacy once and for all, he'd thrown himself into the work. Maybe he's maturing, Marcus thought. The director wasn't normally an optimistic man, but he couldn't help but wonder if things were looking up. If Theron learned to stay out of trouble, and Jace could secure SIS's future long-term funding, maybe he wouldn't wake up every morning with a crippling migraine. Welcome back, Director. The receptionist greeted him, her features breaking into a smile. Did you miss me? He asked, responding with a grin of his own. I count every second of every day that you're not here, she replied, even as she buzzed him in. As before, Jace Malcolm was sitting behind his desk when the director entered his office. I've already started pulling together the resources you requested for Operation Endgame, the Supreme Commander told him, jumping right to the point. You'll have everything you need. I'll pass your appreciation on to the analytics team, Marcus replied. They were pulling double shifts all week to get this done. The overtime took a big chunk out of our budget, but we figured this was worth it. I can take a hint, Jace said with a smile, indicating for the director to take a seat in the chair across from him. I'll make sure your department gets all the credits you need going forward. Marcus nodded in thanks as he sat down. I was glad to see you calling out the need for the Jedi to be involved in your report. I know some folks don't like working with them. They're a valuable resource for the Republic, the director replied. We just have to learn to use them properly. They offered to have Master Nostaral join our team. A good choice, the director said, recalling the files the Order had sent over to the SIS. Darth Carrot was Nostaral's apprentice before she decided to study under Malgus. I don't think they'd phrase it like that, Jace told him with a wry smile. They'd probably say she fell to the temptations of the dark side. Marcus frowned. You think the Jedi are sending Nostaral so he can try to redeem her? Nostaral's a pragmatist, Jace assured him. Well... As much as any Jedi can be. He won't do anything that might endanger the mission. When Marcus didn't reply right away, Jace asked, Is this going to be a problem for your people? No, sir. Every name on that list I gave you is a professional. Whichever one of my agents you select for the mission will work alongside Nostarol without complaint. Actually, Jace said, I wanted to talk to you about that list. For some reason, the hairs on the back of Marcus's neck stood up. The files were all very impressive, but why wasn't Theron Shan among them? For a moment, the director was too stunned to reply. SIS kept the identities of their field agents under close wraps. For security reasons, only a handful of people had access to department personnel records, and the Supreme Commander wasn't one of them. The director had given him a list of six agents who might be suitable for Operation Endgame, but that list didn't include Theron. 
You know Theron? He asked, wondering where the Supreme Commander had come up with the name. Only from the analytics report, Jace admitted. He was listed as the agent who uncovered Darth Mekis' research. The director shook his head, confused. He'd reviewed the report before it was sent to Jace. Theron's name had been redacted from the files. He was certain of it. Someone in analytics must have altered the final report before forwarding it to Jace. And Marcus had a pretty good idea who the culprit was. No wonder Theron was so happy to be working on this report, the director thought, gritting his teeth as he felt one of his migraines threatening to come on. Jace picked up on the director's discomfort. Is something wrong? Is Theron Shan no longer with SIS? Marcus thought about lying, but he didn't want to risk damaging his relationship with the Supreme Commander if the truth ever came to light. Theron's still with us. Is he a good agent? One of our best, the director admitted. But every agent on the list I gave you is just as capable. If Theron Shan started this, don't you think he's earned the right to see it through? Theron may not be the best candidate for this particular mission, Marcus replied. This is a joint operation with the Jedi. He works best on his own. The report says he was working with a Jedi when he went after Darth Mekis. Someone named Nagani Zhou. That was a unique situation. Jace arched the eyebrow on the good side of his face in surprise. You don't think Operation Endgame is a unique situation? Theron's methods can sometimes be a bit too... Uh, stylish, Marcus explained, choosing his words carefully. Stylish? He prefers to go through the window instead of a perfectly good door. I know the type, Jace said, nodding. More than a few of them in the military get addicted to the adrenaline rush. Always looking for action. Makes them trigger happy. They get too fond of killing and bloodshed. Theron's not like that, the director assured him, unwilling to sully his agent's reputation, even if he did feel like tossing Theron into a trash compactor at the moment. You're obviously concerned about something, Jace continued. Are you worried he might betray us? His loyalty to the Republic is absolute, the director said emphatically. He's just... unfocused. He sees something that doesn't sit right with him, and he has to get involved, even if it's not part of the mission. He likes to improvise instead of sticking to plans. Sounds to me like he's just going above and beyond, the Supreme Commander said. We could use someone like that for this mission. Realizing the argument was already lost, the director held back a sigh as he asked, Do you want me to send over his file? I doubt there's anything in there you can't tell me now. What do you want to know? His name is Shan. Any relation to the Jedi Grandmaster? Shan is a very common name, probably ten million of them on Coruscant alone. You didn't answer my question, Jace said, fixing Marcus with a piercing stare. Theron's her son, Marcus admitted. Jace blinked in surprise. 
Satil Sen had a son? Only a handful of people know, Marcus explained. Obviously, this is something we want to keep under wraps. The Jedi aren't supposed to have children. Who's the father? Another Jedi? I don't know. I don't think even Theron knows. The Supreme Commander was quiet for a few moments. I'm guessing Theron isn't attuned to the Force, he said at last. Otherwise, he'd be in the Order instead of SIS. True. But this could still be good for the mission, Jay said, speaking quickly. Working with Jedi isn't easy. His relationship with Satil might make it easier to coordinate our efforts with the Order. Theron doesn't really have a relationship with Satil, the director cautioned. She gave him up at birth. I don't even know if they've ever met. I see, Jay said, furrowing his brow. Seems odd he wouldn't want to get to know her, given that they both serve the Republic. Theron's relationship with the Jedi is uh, complicated, the director explained. He was raised in secret by Master Nagani Zhou, Satil's mentor. Taught him everything the young Padawans learn at the Academy. Mental discipline, Jedi, philosophy. I guess Zhou just assumed he would follow in Satil's footsteps when he got older. But the Jedi refused to take him. Turns out he wasn't sensitive to the Force. He took after his father, Jace muttered. Probably. Marcus agreed. Kind of made Theron rethink all those lessons he learned as a kid. Do you think he harbors any resentment toward the Jedi because they rejected him? He respects what the Jedi do for the Republic, Marcus replied. But he's seen firsthand that they're not perfect. Made him a bit cynical when it comes to some of their more strongly held beliefs. There was a long silence as the Supreme Commander weighed this new information. I want him for this mission, Jay suddenly declared, dumping his hand on the top of his desk for emphasis. I served with Satil Shan during the war. If Theron has any of his mother in him, he's the perfect man for this job. Theron's good, the director said, making a final half-hearted effort to change the Supreme Commander's mind. But I really think we'd be better off going with one of the agents from my original list. Jake shook his head. Theron's the one. Yes, sir, the director replied, though his response lacked any real enthusiasm. I'll send his file so you can look it over, and I'll let Theron know. Don't be so glum, Marcus, Jake said with a grin. I've got a gut feeling about this kid. And I've learned to trust my gut. Minister Davidge, the Imperial Minister of Logistics, tapped at the console of his computer, flipping through screen after screen of numbers arranged in columns, tables, graphs, and charts. The entirety of the Empire was represented in those numbers. Every citizen, every soldier, every subjugate, and every slave on every world every ship and every fleet, as well as all the resources produced across all the systems and sectors under Imperial control, was accounted for in mind-numbing detail and accuracy. 
The totalitarian rule of the Emperor had led to a very efficient and organized system of inventories and censuses that measured everything under his control. And though he was gone, much to Minister Davidge's relief, the bureaucratic network he'd installed still remained. The screens and screens of numbers were the lifeblood Davidge needed. Without accurate, up-to-date data, he couldn't do his job. And in his mind, it was clearly the most important job in the Empire. Logistics on a metascape were the be-all and end-all of the Empire's survival. Resources and manpower dictated supplies and labor, which dictated the potential production and expected consumption of everything. Without him, the Empire had no plan to guide its course. Without him, the Minister of War wouldn't know how many ships or troops to send to each sector or which worlds were worth fighting for, and which weren't worth the resources to defend. Even the Dark Council's members relied on him to give them a sense of the relative strength of the Empire compared to the Republic. Unfortunately, the Minister lacked hard numbers on the Republic. Ever since the collapse of Imperial intelligence, data on the enemy had come from estimates, assumptions, and guesswork. It added variance to his equations, and Minister Davidge hated variance. It required him to provide predictions for both high and low ends of the spectrum, doubling his workload as he offered up predictive models, tracking the ebb and flow of the Galactic War. Even using the lowest estimates of Republic resources, the truth was inescapable. The tide had turned against the Empire, and if something didn't radically change over the next few years, their defeat was inevitable. It was simple math. The minister finished up his final review of the data, gathered his report, and stood from his desk, stretching to loosen his cramped and tired muscles. He'd been huddled over the chair for nearly twelve hours, but Darth Maher had presented him with a question, and Davidge needed to be sure of the answer before he replied. Confident in his analysis, he turned and headed to the locked Durasteel door in the back of his office. He punched in the sixteen-digit code to unlock it, stepped inside, and sealed the door behind him. He moved quickly over to the communications console in the center of the room and activated the black cipher to send out an encrypted message to Darth Mar. The Sith Lord answered immediately. Clearly, he'd been waiting for Davidge's call. My lord, the minister said, I've reviewed the situation in the Boronal system as you commanded. I assumed as much when I saw your call. Mar answered, his voice calm and cold as the grave. Davidge suppressed an urge to shudder. He didn't like dealing with the Dark Council. The Sith Lords were strange creatures beyond his comprehension. They were driven by emotion and passion, rather than logic and careful analysis. They often relied on visions and prophecy gleaned through the Force, allowing some mystical, unquantifiable power to guide their actions rather than the undeniable truth of numbers. And sometimes, they stubbornly refused to believe what he tried to tell them, especially when he delivered news they didn't want to hear. Mar was better than some of the others. He didn't rage and scream at Davidge when he didn't get the answer he sought, like Ravage, and he didn't seem to be eviscerating the minister with his eyes like Mortis. Most important, Mar understood that the minister's projections were not guarantees. Unforeseen variables could alter the equation, rendering the minister's numbers obsolete. 
but there was still something unsettling about the icy calm with which Mar always addressed him. What is your analysis? Mar pressed, and Davidge realized the Sith had been waiting for him to give his report. Uh, given the estimated level of Republic-backed resistance and the growing tide of anti-imperial sentiment among the native population, we should abandon our campaign in the Boronol system. There are three habitable worlds in that system. Nearly twenty billion people. Yes, my lord. But none of the planets has the abundance of resources necessary to offset the losses we will inevitably sustain if we try to keep the population under imperial control. What's the loss ratio? Extrapolated over six months, there is a net point two percent reduction in total imperial output if we let the system go. And if we try to hold it? Conservative estimates put the loss at point four percent. After a moment, he hastily added, In the worst-case scenario, losses could hit 0.7%. To some, the numbers might sound small, but Davidge knew Mar was wise enough to understand the incredible scope of even two one-hundredths of a percent of the Empire's total resources. The cost is high, but the Boronol system is not the only place in the Empire threatening to break away from our control. Crushing this uprising will send a message to other systems. Of course, my lord, Davidge said, though silently he sighed. He understood Mar's reasoning. Expend extra resources on the Boronol system in the hope that it would offset future losses. But in the Minister's experience, such a plan rarely worked. Anti-Imperial sentiment would still rise up in other systems, fed and fueled by the Republic and their promises of liberation. They would never recoup the extra few tenths of a percent it would cost them to hold the system. In Davidge's mind, this is how the Empire would fall. Not in some epic battle, but by tiny margins bleeding away. A death of a million microscopic cuts. But he dared not argue with Darth Mar. I will arrange to have one of our nearby fleets send reinforcements to the system, the minister said. I believe Darth Carid is still in that sector. The Ascendant Spear's arrival should put a quick end to the uprising. The minister fought back another sigh. He was all too familiar with Darth Carid and her methods. Whenever the Ascendant Spear was brought into a conflict, casualties and collateral damage increased exponentially. There was no doubt in his mind that the loss ratio would now push toward the highest of his estimates. Against his better judgment, the minister decided to speak up. I'm still trying to absorb the cost of Darth Carrot's intervention at Larator. The loss of Gravis's fleet has negatively impacted our projections. In this case, it might be better if you ordered someone else to go. Darth Carrot is a member of the Dark Council now. She does not take orders from me, or from you. Uh, forgive me, my lord. I meant no offense. Choose your words more carefully when you contact off Carrot to request her assistance in this matter. Davidge understood numbers better than people, but it was obvious what Mar was hoping to accomplish. It was well known that he had supported the Falleen's candidacy from the beginning, and having the Minister of Logistics personally petition Darth Carrot for aid in the Boronol system would further legitimize her new position. 
and persuading her to undertake a mission in a remote system would keep her and the Ascendant Spear away from the machinations of any other members of the Dark Council who might be looking to recruit her allegiance, at least for a while. It wasn't the first time the Minister had been forced to bow to the politics of the Dark Council. At least this time, the cost to the Empire was less than it had been on other occasions. I understand, my lord. I will contact her at once. Try to be convincing when you ask for her help. Mar warned before disconnecting the signal. From his reports, the Minister knew every potentially significant detail about Boronal and the other worlds in the system. Their geography and climate, their citizens and culture, their resources and industry. And he knew exactly how he would present this proposal to Darth Carrot. He composed a brief message summarizing the situation, running it through the cipher before transmitting it to the Ascendant Spear with a highest priority ranking. Despite this, it took almost 30 minutes before he received a reply. The delay was troubling. It hinted that the Fallen, like so many other of the high-ranking Sith Lords, had little regard for the crucial role the Minister of Logistics played in the ongoing Galactic War. Pushing his fears aside, Minister Davidge answered the incoming hollow. Darth Carrot's face materialized before him. Each time he saw her, Davidge couldn't help but notice her marred beauty. Her perfect skin had been disfigured by the tattoos on her face that represented her devotion to the ways of the Sith. The cybernetic implants dominating her left side transformed her features into a grotesque mix of flesh and steel. I received your message, Minister Davidge, Darth Carrot said, her tone somewhere between annoyance and contempt. Is this foolishness on Boronal really worthy of the Ascendant Spear? No, it is not, Davidge thought. But more wants you there. Out loud, he said. We have reports of a steady build-up of Republic ships in the region in conjunction with numerous accounts of growing anti-imperial sentiment among the locals. My projections show that if this potential uprising is not dealt with swiftly, it could have a ripple effect throughout the Empire. She twisted her face up in a sneer. And what made you think this insignificant system was important enough to trouble a member of the Dark Council? Knowing Mar would be displeased if Karen discovered his involvement, the minister instead went with a carefully fabricated justification for contacting her. There is a hypermatter research station on Boronal, Davidge told her. There was some truth to his statement. There was an old hypermatter research station on Boronal, the largest and most heavily populated planet in the similarly named system. But he omitted the fact that it was a useless government boondoggle put in place generations ago by corrupt politicians taking payouts from the wealthy family that owned the research company. The archaic equipment had fallen into disrepair, and the technicians supposedly working there were mostly relatives of influential nobles with no proper training. Since you are now overseeing the technology sphere of influence, Davidge continued, blatantly appealing to her ego. I thought you might want to handle this personally. We can't let the research station fall under Republic control. Carrot favored him with a coy smile. 
an expression that at the height of her beauty would have made Davidge's knees buckle with yearning and desire. Now, however, her gruesome visage merely churned his stomach. Perhaps Ma is right about you. Maybe you are of some use to the Empire, after all. Davidge remained silent. You're in luck, Minister, she said after a brief moment of contemplation. I will set the course for the Baranal system and put an end to the flickers of rebellion. I thank you on behalf of the Empire, Davidge replied. Kara didn't bother to reply as she terminated the call. Relieved, the minister turned off the cipher, rose from his seat, and walked out of the communications room. He closed the Durasteel door behind him, waiting for the single beep that confirmed it was locked and the cipher beyond was secure. Then he returned to his desk and went back to studying his tables, charts, and graphs. Whoa, did we just warp speed through a Star Wars smorgasbord? The Force went full-on drama mode, and I swore I felt it all the way in my space boots. It's like my brain took a joyride around the universe. Can you believe that was just a sliver of the saga? I'm over here like a Padawan who just mastered the levitating pebble trick and is eyeing the next boulder. With every turn, we're unearthing more space adventure. It's like a hyperspace highway with more twists than a womp rat's tail. But hang on, space cowboys and space cowgirls. It's time for this episode's golden nuggets of wisdom. And this cosmic quote comes to us straight from Clone War Season 5, Episode 17, Opening Scene. It said, Sometimes even the smallest doubt can shake the greatest belief. So what does that really mean? Even the tiniest bit of doubt can mess with what we strongly believe, even if we're really sure about it. Sounds crazy, right? But don't worry, having doubts is totally normal. This is just part of going and figuring things out. It doesn't mean that you're unsure, it's just our brain trying to understand things better. Now first off, it's okay to have doubt. We all go through it, and it's cool because it helps us learn about ourselves and what we stand for. So don't stress out when you have a doubt, there are just chances to grow and learn about yourself. But stay curious, keep asking questions, and believe in yourself. You got this. And that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed part four of Annihilation, and I hope you will join me for part five in a few days. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Annihilation was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.